I uh, have a lot of appreciation for the chant that we've been doing, the Anicca Vata Sankara. And it continues, Ubadawa Yadamano Upakitu Wa Nirochanti Desang Wu Pasamo Sukho. It's a beautiful chant in Pali, and it's a beautiful understanding that is expressed in that chant, all things are impermanent. All things are impermanent, they arise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings the greatest happiness. And a little bit, that's what we're doing here, exactly what this chant is talking about. We're looking at how things change and how um, and what happens when we get comfortable with that truth. That, you know, however old we are, right? And in this group, it's 55 or older. It continues to change, right? The body changes, the heart changes, the mind changes, our understanding changes, our realization changes. It's not, reality is not static. <clears throat> and in the Dharma, one of the basic um, ways the Dharma is talked about is awakening to the way things are. Very simple, it's so simple. We're just awakening to the way things are, to the truth of the way things are. And that's all we're doing here today. And that's all we really ever do here in Spirit Rock is we're encouraging and hopefully supporting and pointing at the way things are and the fact that we can relax here with the way things are. And when I say relax, it's, it's, um, it's one, of the, one of the ways uh, practice begins to awaken us as we see we can be here with the way things are. And it doesn't mean we agree with everything about the way things are or we're not going to respond to anything because we can relax with it. It means, no, we can relax and utilize our um, aliveness and our intelligence and our creativity and our discernment to respond to reality, to, to respond to the way things are, to live with the way things are. And it's sometimes it's confused, there's confusion because Buddhism sounds like it's just um, passive and it's not at all passive. It's receptive in order to then respond to the way things are. <clears throat> And so this retreat, part of what we're doing is looking at being receptive to the truth of our aging. And we're getting older. And we're at a different phase of life. And that part of what that phase of life will ultimately include is death. <clears throat> and so I thought I would start by saying some personal things about my own relationship to Buddhism and death. And, uh, 
and, and then talk more broadly about Buddhist relationship to death and teachings about death. And, uh, it, you know, and I was contemplating this, thinking about giving the talk, and then I remembered, oh, I started reading the Tibetan Book of, De of the Dead when I was 14 years old. And that's a long time now, because I'm not just, you know, 27, right? Uh, and so, you know, that's like, oh, let me think, it's always 54 years ago, right? I started reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about at all, to be totally honest. But I was just intrigued with the fact that somebody would talk about death and that it was part of a spiritual tradition that had some import. And, but I couldn't make sense of it. But I still, I thought it was very cool that I was reading it. You know, I was, I was down with that part of it. And I really haven't remembered that in a long time. And, um, and I've been involved with uh, death, really, I, of course, I could say accurately ever since I was born, as you have been. But definitely since at 14, I had a real interest in it. Not exactly sure why, or, but I went with it, right? Like getting the Tibetan Book of the Dead and trying to read it and at least carrying it around so people saw that I had it. <laughs> <Not> definitely. <laughs> really. Uh, and as I've said, I think I said it here, I also teach the Maranasati retreat here at Spirit Rock, which is a, treat, a retreat I love. And the Maranasati being mindfulness of death. And I love that retreat. It's, you know, it's really one of my favorite retreats because nobody has ever taught it here at Spirit Rock and I did taught day-longs about it and uh, and at one day-long people said could we have another day-long about it I said oh you want you know Maranasati part two and and they were like yeah and I and I said well I'm not so interested in that but I'd do a retreat and I said, would you come to retreat? And they said, oh yeah, we'd come to retreat. And that's how it started. It's because of the interaction we had around death. And I keep learning so much by teaching that retreat because people get real, like this retreat. This is, again, it's also a no bullshit retreat, Maranasati. <clears throat> But um, when I first got involved in Buddhism, I was looking around for what interested me. And, and I knew that Buddhism had teachings about death. And, I, and that one of the teachings was to be with people who were dying or dead. And so I, I didn't know how to do that, right, in San Francisco in the 20th century. Um, but... Um, the Zen Hospice Project started while I was on a long retreat. And I came back and I saw, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I'm interested in. I could go do that. And I started to, uh, and they'd already done their little training of volunteers. And, uh, and so I started calling them to get, um, see if I could get in. And, uh, and they kept not returning my phone calls. <laughs> I remember being totally pissed. And, uh, and, uh, 
And finally, they, after about seven calls, uh, this guy uh, called me back and, and he said, well, you know, maybe you could do something. Well, come in, I need to meet you. And he had me come in to meet him because he wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. You know, that I was stable enough so I could do whatever they needed. And, but he said, but we've already had the training. So when I saw him, he got I was okay. And, uh, and he said, uh, well, we've already had the training, so I can't let you work with anybody. But you could help, like go get medicine or get supplies or do things. And I'm like, great, whatever might be helpful. I'm interested in being part of the Zen Hospice Project. And... Um, and then like less than a week later, I got a phone call and he said, this is Frank Ostaseski, who is one of the founders with Martha de Barrios, total bodhisattva person. And, um, and uh, Frank said, well, uh, you know, we we've just taken in the first person who's dying at Zen Center and uh, could you come help? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can come help. It was on a Sunday or something. And, and, uh, and so I, he said, okay, I'll, you, you come in and I'll introduce you to Stella. And I went in to meet Stella. And I figured Frank will tell me what to do. You know, Frank will teach me. And, uh, and so I go in and Frank takes me up to a room and there's a woman lying in a bed, big woman lying there and she's dying. And... Uh, and uh, Frank says, Stella, this is Eugene. Eugene, this is Stella. And then he said, okay, um, uh, thanks. And there'll be some other volunteer coming in four hours. And he leaves. <laughs> and I'm like, so I don't know what to do, except, you know, I know, you know, I'm like a nice guy, kind of. So, so I'm, you know, helping her out, relating it. Finally, at some point, I said, Stella, you know, I just, I didn't go to the training, so I don't know what to do. And she laughed. She said, ah, ha, ha. She said, oh, we all need a little help sometimes, dearie. <laughs> and, and, and she taught me how to be a hospice volunteer, like what was needed, like just to move her around. I didn't know how to do that. There's some skillful techniques for how to move somebody who's, um, um, not flexible in that usual way. And uh, she was great, Stella. That's a whole long story, I can tell you. <laughs> great, great, beautiful being. And But I spent time with her, and then I spent a lot of time with a lot of people who were aging and dying for whatever reason, whether it was age or illness or accident or whatever it might be. And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time and spent a lot of time in hospice also as a volunteer and then training volunteers and then leading um, uh, grief groups for people who lost people. It was also part of what I did over many years associated with Zen Hospice Project. And you know, and the don't know mind was so much part of it because I didn't know, it was different every time with every person. It wasn't the same, there were some similarities. But I mean, some people I would be taking care of in 
what was then the Tenderloin, which is now a more upscale neighborhood, but then was not an upscale neighborhood. And it, it was in single room hotels, taking care of people who were dying. And, or it was at Zen Center. Sometimes we had people at Zen Center before we even had the Zen Hospice building, which we now have. And, um, and then I was asked by a little Zendo in the Castro, who had taken somebody in who had AIDS, would I come and do some work there with this person, J.D.? And uh, J.D. was a young man who had AIDS and was, when I came in, they said, oh, he's going to die in a day or two. And he was totally unconscious. And as he was lying there, uh, he was doing this. His arms were flapping just for, I don't know why, because of the illness, because of the medication, whatever it was. So all I would do was like, you know, very gently hold his arm so he wasn't hitting himself or flapping. And and uh, and I would try to talk to him sometimes. And sometimes he understood and sometimes he didn't. And one time, and this is in the first time I'm be with him, I said to him, uh, and I moved him, and I wanted to make sure, was that okay, J.D.? How, how was that? Was uh, How did that feel? He said... It, and all of a sudden, because he, he barely could whisper, all of a sudden, in a very loud voice, he said, It feels like I'm God and you're a saint. <laughs> and he could have been right. I don't know. But it was quite striking because we don't know, especially at that phase of life, who knows what's possible, really, and what happens to consciousness at that phase of life. <clears throat> and a little bit because of my training with Zen Hospice, I felt very comfortable caring for my parents when they were dying. Um, took care of my mom and uh, um, uh, you know, worked with her with the death process and and uh, you know I remember uh, again not knowing what's going to happen because uh, my mom was down in LA and I was down there and I had a brother who had a family down there and but we were staying very close to my where my parents lived and um, so I was in a little like a hotel motel room near my folks and uh, I remember waking up. We knew she was close to death, and so it. And I remember waking up at some point uh, one morning early, and going in the shower. And I just this thing happened, where I said, "Oh, it's okay, mom. You can go. It's okay. You can go." And then I showered, dried off, and then I get a phone call. She just died. And so I'm, I'm saying this because we don't know what's possible or what happens. And all I knew is I knew something then. And I said, it's fine to go. And she died right then. How I knew that, I don't know. But it was true what was happening. <clears throat> 
and there was, you know, and there's humor with death also, and that's not a bad thing, right? Because it's life. It's life and death. And they have their pluses and minuses, all of it. And it has its humor, at least for me. And so we washed my mother's body, which is a very traditional thing to do after death. And, uh, you know, and I hadn't seen my mother naked since I was probably three years old, right, or something like that. And so it was interesting to see her and, and I'm reflecting about her breasts and oh, these are the breasts that I nursed on and, and I'm having this big reverie and, and then I realize, oh, she didn't breastfeed at all. <laughs> I, I didn't nurse on <laughs> And I say it because it was funny because I was having this deep reverie that wasn't true. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and she didn't mind me l- laughing about it at that point. <laughs> and my dad, uh, who lived longer than my mom, my mom was about, I don't know, 78. And, I, and my dad lived till 92. And so he, that's a ripe old age. And, uh, but he was tired of aging. He was very clear, like, I don't need to be here anymore. And he even asked me, he said, can you help me? And I was like, I just don't think I can do that, Dad. You know, and I assumed he knew how to do something if he wanted, but he wasn't that sophisticated about drugs. So I don't know, but I couldn't do, that wasn't right for me to do. But, but he was tired of being alive. He'd, he'd lost so many people. And I don't mean, you know, people close, but just people he knew his whole life was gone because that's what happens if we live longer and longer is everybody else goes, everything goes, all the, you know, the, the world one knows is also gone, right? And so he was, he was in my view, he was happy to go. And, and I remember he died and um, we were also taking care of him. I was trying to get the, the um, hospice, uh, not, it wasn't hospice, but the city to leave the body for a day, which they don't like to do. They, they want the body gone immediately. But I, I got him to leave it for a while. We were hanging out and, and given my training with hospice, I also like to be around dead bodies a little bit because it's something different than being around a live body. And I like to, and especially with my parents, just touching their bodies, it's sobering in the deepest meaning of that word, sobering. It wakes one up to the reality of birth and death, life and death. And so, um, and I did that with him and I was hanging out there for a while. And then I, something really happened that was surprised me, which is I saw, oh, he's not an old man anymore. Because he'd been an old man for quite a while in my mind, in my perception. And But as soon as that broke, that fixated view of who he was, it was like, oh, I remembered all of him. He'd been so many different people in my life, right? From the time I was born until now, until he was 92. 
And he wasn't any one thing permanently. He was always changing. And it was very freeing to see, oh, he's not an old man anymore. It just made my heart so happy to, for me as well as for him. Because who knows where he was now. And then the last thing I'll say personally, maybe I'll say a little more later, but right now I'll just say, you know, I had a very serious accident. Many of you know, many of you don't. I had a serious bicycle accident, hit my head, had a brain injury, traumatic brain injury, which I'd never even heard of, and I couldn't even comprehend what that meant when it happened because I didn't have enough brain functioning for me to understand something like that. Like, and the way I, my, the way I speak about it is, Eugene got unplugged, like totally unplugged, or seriously unplugged. Like Eugene, who he'd been and was and knew and memory and everything and cognitive functioning was gone. And uh, and I was in hospital five weeks, and I'm happy to be here, you know, happy that I survived. But it was also uh, hard to understand what happened in that time after the accident, especially right after. And, uh, and a number of, I had much good fortune of people caring for me, both family and, of course, the uh, medical people. Um, but um, some of my teachers came in the first few days to the hospital, Jack Cornfield and, and Hamid Ali both, who are two very important teachers of mine in my life. And, um, you know, Jack's the person who asked me to teach, right? Because he, whatever, he liked me. And we became, we've been friends for many years now. And, uh, but, but I didn't talk to him much after I started to recover. I didn't see him much. And I was not functional to come back and just take up my roles at Spirit Rock again for quite a long time. And, um, and then after somewhere nine months or a year later, I sat down with Jack and I said, what happened? And he said, oh, you want to know about the karma? I said, no, I don't care about karma. Because um, I didn't, that wasn't my concern. I said, what happened? Where'd I go? He said, oh, you died. And as soon as he said, said that, it was, I knew that was true. But nobody had ever said that to me. Nobody would say that. Because, you know, but Jack's good that way sometimes. He really says the truth of the way things are. He said, oh, you died. And that was, it, was a very, it was a great relief to me. Oh, yes, that's what happened. And now, I didn't die physically. I want to be clear about that. Some near-death experiences, there is a, a gap of life. Um, and, there's, and I didn't have a classical near-death experience, but what happened was I died. I got unplugged. And, um, and, uh, and it was very uh, helpful when he said that. And, and, then, and a lot of memories came up not not just then, even before then, but a lot of memories I've retained about what happened after 
um, I died. But it wasn't so much, oh, I, it's not like I remember the accident or remember this or remember, I remember some stuff. But I remember things that happened in the middle of the night that were totally outside the box in terms of consciousness. And that part is very uh, significant to me. It changed my whole life. Because I thought I knew a little bit about consciousness. You know, I'd done spiritual work for many years and, and I've been around in different ways. I've done psychedelic drugs and stuff, but this was so outside the box of what I knew about what was possible for consciousness. And, um, and it included, I'm just going to say this one thing, it included at one point, it must have been in the first day or two, it was clear that I might die or, or that I might live or I might die. And I remember, and again, I don't even know how to explain this because there wasn't the me remembering when it happened. That wasn't functional, but I knew that uh, if I lived, it would be good. And I also knew if I died, it would be good. And I don't know why I knew that, but I knew that. And that knowing has stayed with me and is just here. And I'm not, I'm not in a hurry to die or anything like that. But I also, there's some part of me that just knows something about life is good, death is good. And you'll hear a little more that I'm going to tell you from some of the Buddhist teaching that may be in alignment with what I'm pointing at. <clears throat> um, but one of the things I've seen is I don't feel afraid of death, right? I don't, that's not one of my fears these days. I can have fears and not want things and all kinds of stuff. You know, I feel very normal in that way, but also I just don't feel afraid of death. Like much more I have the sense and this is just Eugene, this is not the Buddha set or anything, but that um, who knows really what happens when we die. And the one surety I have is if we're, the more we're there, the more it's good. Right? Whatever it is that's happening. And this is, uh, let's see if I can find the, This is from in the American, not excuse me, Western tradition. From Socrates, he said, to fear death is nothing other than to think oneself wise when one is not. To fear death is to think oneself wise when one is not. For it, for it is to think that one knows what one does not know. No person knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest of blessings for a human being. No person knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest of blessings for a human being. And yet people fear it as if they knew for certainty that it is the greatest of evils. So that's a beautiful understanding of not knowing 
and seeing, because here's one of the great things I can tell you, you're all gonna see, right? I have not met anybody yet, I have not known of anybody yet who failed to die, right? It's not like you're gonna stay here forever, which is also a blessing, because at a certain point the bodies doesn't work very well. Like my dad at 92, it's like, okay, enough. And you may have had a taste of that given your age. So in Buddhism, mindfulness of death is uh, appreciated many different ways. The story of the Buddha's death is a very important story. It's called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Mahaparinibbana. Nibbana is nirvana. Maha and para is great. The great nirvana is about his death. And he knows he's going to die in a few months. And what does he do with that information? He goes around to all the places where his followers have set up monasteries and practice places, and he gives the same teaching he's been giving for the past 40 years, right? Like we keep saying, oh, this is just basic Buddhist teaching we're doing here with aging and, and dying and awakening. It's just what the Buddha did when he was dying and what he taught for 40 years, which was centered on the Eightfold Noble Path of right understanding, right intention, right um, speech, right action, right livelihood, right um, uh, effort, right mindfulness, right, con right concentration, right samadhi, right? Which are, oh, here's the tools to live an awakened life and to be free. And that's what he gave. That's what we're doing here. And that's what we're going to continue to do because it works, actually. And so the Eightfold Path is key. Like even, you know, there's beautiful, it's, it's great that everybody's using mindfulness, but it's only a small part of the picture the picture is to live a mature life as a human being, which uses all of our, the components of what it is to be a human being, body, heart, and mind. It includes our intelligence and our uh, dynamism and our aliveness. And so it's said, the Eightfold Path has deathless as its ground and final goal. And I'm mentioning the deathless because it's one of the metaphors for nibbana or nirvana, is the deathless. The realizing what's beyond life and death is part of what brings freedom, or is, what, is part of what freedom brings. Hmm. So one of the places that... Um, death first gets pointed at in the most basic Buddhist teachings are in the four foundations of mindfulness, right? And in the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body, there's a whole section about the fact that the body dies. And one wants to be aware of that. 
and one wants to get familiar with it. One wants to get comfortable with it. And the way, I don't know if I brought the list. Yeah, I don't think I did. Yeah, it's not here. But there's a, a number of different contemplations one does of dead bodies. And one sees that um, this body is no different from that body, or this body will be no different than that body. As you see a body, so he, the Buddha would send practitioners out to the charnel ground, and some of the bodies weren't burned, but were left because people were too poor to afford the means to burn them. And so they would just be left there. And so there would be a body one day dead or two days dead or three days dead or one week dead or three weeks dead or six weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks. And you could, and he would have people sit with the bodies and see that this body will someday be like that body. In order to get us to relax about our attachment to the body, and our identification with the body, which is a very common animal identification, right? If you notice all animals, like staying alive is the most important thing, the, the survival instinct. And it's part of what we have. Human beings also have a survival instinct as part of um, uh, our animal nature. And yet there's something more to what's here than just our animal nature. And so, like in the Maranasati retreat, we show photographs of decomposing bodies at different stages so people could actually practice by seeing what bodies look like when they're dead and have been dead for a while. <clears throat> Um, there's another way that um, Buddhism talks about uh, a death. And let's see. Boy, somehow I'm missing some stuff. That's really too bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, this is Teacher Dukkha. It's really about the coming and going, arising and passing. Basically, it's funny, I have a nice quote from Nanapanaka. Nope, not here. Um, What he said, what he pointed to, which is in the Vasudhimaga, which is about how um, every moment, there's only life in one moment. We're only alive for one moment. The moment that was previous is gone, has died. Moments that are coming aren't here yet. There's only one actual moment of life. And the way they describe it traditionally, it's like a wagon wheel only touches the ground at one point. Same, human life is only alive for one point. 
Even the wagon wheel, whether it's standing still or moving, is only touching the ground at one point. And human, al- human life is only alive for one moment at a time. And we project past and future as permanent, as here, as, oh yeah, for sure. But we really don't know. And really, we know the past is gone. It's not here at all, actually. Everything about the past is in our minds, basically, or in our projections on something. But And everything about the future is, who knows, really, maybe. And, and so there's just a moment, there's just this moment is your whole life right now. There's no other moment. And there may be, you'll go home and there'll be other moments, but who knows? Right? So there's also in this understanding of arising and passing of each moment is the totality of human life is also the truth that everything else is remembered or imagined. And we tend to live in that remembering or imagining as if it's reality. And it's okay, it's important to know. I know where Eugene's car is and where he parked it and where he goes and my house is. It's not like, oh, forget that. But especially on retreat, sometimes consciousness can settle into the actuality of the moment-by-moment reality of what's sitting here. And that's a very powerful part of practice and the understanding of death and the rising and passing of reality moment by moment. The rising and passing of life each moment. There's also, there's also a correlate, not a correlate, but another component of that teaching. It's called the law of... Um, understanding uh, another law um, which is related to the understanding of death and change, right? Arising and passing. It's called the law of becoming. This is from Bhante Gunaratna. He said, he said um, um, the law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything, right? While the law of change states that nothing is permanent and is ever changing, the law of becoming states that everything is always in the process of changing into something else. Changing into something else. Not only is everything changing into something else, but the nature of that change is a process of becoming something else, however short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is a feature of all things. And it's beautiful because it points to the dynamism of reality. It's everything is changing, but everything isn't changing and then it's all gone. Oh, everything is becoming something else. Moment by moment by moment. And look in your own experience and see over the next few days. See what happens. 
as you stay very present with yourself. There's another traditional contemplation um, of death, Maranasati contemplation, and it's there are a few different phrases that one contemplates and really it looks at clearly in your own experience. One is that Buddha says everybody has to die. Everyone has to die. Right? That's just the way things are. Everyone has to die. Right? And even if we're healthy or well or young or babies or we're still gonna die. That's just part of human reality. And so we contemplate that, meaning we sit with that truth that everyone will die. Or that another one of these five contemplations is that the time of death is uncertain. The time of death is uncertain. It may be, you know, 40 years from now or 20 years or whatever we imagine, or it may be tonight, really. One really doesn't know. People have died on retreat. I always think that's not a bad place to die, but, you know, because, you know, I mean, you could die somewhere else. Maybe it's better, but I think retreat's good. You know, but that's my opinion. Seems like there's a nice presence here for to support whatever happens to consciousness when the body dies. <clears throat> and part of that reflection on the time of death is uncertain is that our lifespan is is decreasing continuously. Right? Everybody got that? Right? And it's just true. Our lifespan is decreasing moment by moment, right? It's just how it is, just the way things are. And another reflection in these contemplations is that there are many causes to death, right? I mean, it would be different for each person here, right? I mean, I could have died in a bike accident. You know, I didn't, but I could have. But doesn't mean you're going to die in a bike accident. You could have a bike accident and you could die, right? Or not die. Or, or you can have, you know, pneumonia and die. Or one can have cancer and die or not die. Or, but, but sooner or later, we'll all die for different reasons, at different causes and conditions to what brings death. And part of this Maranasati contemplation, everyone will die. The time of death is uncertain. There are many causes to death. At the time of death, our possessions cannot help us. Right? I mean, it's nice to have nice things. And, you know, we have a nice music stand. I was a musician for many years. I like music stands. This is not my old one, though, but this is good enough. And... It's nice to have, we have a great bell. We like this bell very much, you know, but it won't help us when we're dying, right? You know, I mean, maybe they'll ring it when I die or something, but it, it doesn't help what's happening, right? 
at the time of death, our possessions cannot help us. And no one can really stop our dying when it's really happening. It's, you know, the medical people do their best, very appreciate their, their good work, but sometimes they, that's all, they do what they can do. And, you know, and uh, our bodies will die, right? And then the fifth um, reflection is the amount of time spent in our lives to develop the Dharma is very small. And so it's pointing in Buddhism to what it thinks is important about dying, which is to wake up. That's a very key piece, that the more awake we are, the more fortunate it's thought to be of what happens when we die. And I, I don't, I'm not giving any guarantee about that. I don't know. I'll see soon enough. Right? We'll, we will all see soon enough. But the inevitability of death, the uncertainty of death, and that only Dharma can help are part of the reflections on death in Buddhism. And here's an even more basic understanding, more basic. And this comes from Ajahn Chah, who, who, in whose lineage we teach. I don't know, did I say that here in the room about Ajahn Chah? Anybody tell me no, yes? No. (laughs) Yes and no. Some people heard it and whether I said it or not, they got it or, okay. Well, Ajahn Chah, again, was Jack Kornfield's teacher, was a beautiful, beautiful being, Thai forest master. And, and, And Ajahn Chah was outside the Buddhist box also. Very cool guy, in my opinion. Meaning, um, at one point, Jack, when Jack was first teaching in America, he was having some problems with people with the language about Buddhism and people having reactions. And he talked to Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah said, Oh, well, if it helps, call it Christianity. <laughs> which, which, like, that's a very free soul. He he, know, he understood because he said just teach the principles, call it Christianity, Buddhism, Buddhism. Who cares what you call it? It's it's the values, and it's the practices that are helpful. That's what's important, right? So Ajahn Chah was called to um, uh, minister uh, to a woman who was dying in his village, in the village near where the monastery was. And so he went to uh, talk to her and he said, now I'll read from, from what he said. He said, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During the time I am speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Today I have brought you nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dharma. Listen well, understand that the Buddha himself, even with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death, right? So even the Buddha, who was a human being who woke up, he also lived and died. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its burden. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline, he was pointing at the woman, is Sat, Saka, Dar, Sacha da, Dharma, the truth. 
the truth of the body. It is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and to come to terms with its nature, with the nature of the body. The Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any state for very long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we could, can do is to contemplate the body and mind so to see their impersonality, see that neither of them is me or mine. Right? So now he's pointing to deeper understanding of what Buddhism is talking about, or pointing at. The, the reality of self and not self is often talked about that way, that none of it is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples, they differed from us in only one respect. They differed from us in only one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. So when I hear this, I hear, oh, they just saw the way things are and they relaxed about it instead of fought with it or tried to fix it. They came into harmony, as it said in the Anicca chant, with the way things are. And that is the doorway to freedom. And again, when I say they come into harmony, I don't mean passivity. They came into seeing the truth of the way things are. And so when I was young and first practicing at Zen Center, I would go and they would, they would call you to practice by hitting a big, thick block of wood that was hanging up. They would hit, hit the wood with a mallet. And they would hit it, and, and everybody would know, oh, it's time to go to the zendo. And they would continue and get faster. And if you weren't in by that last bang, you couldn't come in. So it got you going, got you there, if you wanted to sit. But what, what always moved me was what was written on the block of wood that called you to practice. What was written was, great, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And that spoke to me still speaks to me. And I love that they have great is the matter of birth and death because it, it had a hyphen between birth and death, a, a birth hyphen and hyphen death because they're connected. You don't have one without the other. You don't have birth without death. You don't have death without birth. You don't have life without death. You don't have death without life. They're one thing, ultimately. 
And so the... Now I gotta find the last page. I might not have the last page. It's, no, no, I didn't read the last page. <laughs> Thank you for your insightful uh, <laughs> something. This is about Suzuki Roshi and his death, because Suzuki Roshi was the founder of Zen Center. And so two things I'm going to read. One is, um, I believe it was Stephen Mitchell, now, I can't remember the gentleman who wrote a book about Suzuki Roshi, and he talked about going to Suzuki Roshi's room when Suzuki Roshi was dying. And he said, he went into Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, his skin discolored. He bowed, and I did the same. Then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, don't grieve for me. Don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. Right? So that's a little bit pointing at what is possible that Suzuki Roshi realized in his ordinary and extraordinary life as a Zen monk and teacher in Japan and then here in America. And he said, here's the last piece of what he said, one of the things he said about life and death, birth and death, and the paradox that we've talked about some about life and death and Dharma. He said, you are living in this world as one individual, but before you take form, take the form, before you take the form of a human being, you are already there always there. We are always here. Do you understand? You think before you were born you were not here. But how is it possible for you to appear in this world when there is no you? Because you are already there, you can appear in the world. Also, it is not possible for something to vanish which does not exist. Because something is there, something can vanish. You may think that when you die, you disappear. You no longer exist. But even though you vanish, something which is existent cannot be non-existent. Something that is existent cannot be non-existent. This is the magic. We ourselves cannot put any magic spells on the world. The world is its own magic. Let's sit for a moment, please.
The world is its own magic. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking practice before the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.